Hi everyone, and welcome back to the Hockey Journey Podcast, episode number 37, The Ben Hankinson Hockey Journey, presented to you by OnlineHockeyTraining.com. I'm your host, Coach Lance Pitlick. If you're new here, please make sure you subscribe so you won't miss out on any future episodes. Before we stamp your ticket and start this conversation, if you want to learn more about me, my hockey experiences, what I know, and most importantly, how I've been helping hockey players get really good with a stick and puck, just head on over to OnlineHockeyTraining.com and gain instant access to my 10-part video series where I'll show you everything. Consider it my gift to you. My next guest, Ben Hankinson, has been someone I wanted to get on the show since I got into the podcast game because we spent a lot of time together years ago as college teammates and training partners once we turned pro in the offseason. Mr. Hankinson is a Minnesota native where he grew up going to school and playing sports for the powerhouse Edina Hornets. He went on to play Division I hockey for his hometown Minnesota Gophers. In the 1987 NHL entry draft, Ben was drafted in the 6th round, 107th overall to the New Jersey Devils, playing 448 professional games over 7 seasons. 43 of them were in the NHL. Wasn't much for goal scoring, but did carve out his way in the NHL by chucking the knuckles a bit, as he was a fighter in the heavyweight division. Those were some scary individuals back then. He's currently a certified NHLPA player agent with Octagon Hockey, so we have a lot to discuss. Ladies and gentlemen, Please help me in welcoming Ben Hankinson to the show. Hank, welcome to the Hockey Journey Podcast. Oh, Peter, it's good to be here. Thanks for the kind words. There's a lot of history between you and I, so that's uh, as professional as you could be in the introduction. I appreciate you keeping out a lot of stuff. <laughs> uh, I've been looking forward to this interview for, for a long, long time um, because as we were talking just a little bit ago before we uh, started the, the podcast here, uh, you and I, we were together a lot in the offseason, you know, as, as teammates with the, the Gophers, and, and then we were training partners uh, for the, the length of our careers. Uh, I've never met a more funny human being. I don't know how I ever got finished a workout with you, but I know that it was fun. So thanks for being here, Ben. <laughs> yeah. Thanks for grinding me uh, in those uh, long summer days, or summer mornings, I should say, where when you hook your wagon to a guy like Pitter, you know you're going to get in great shape and be ready mentally more than anything for for whatever's coming around the corner in the fall. Awesome. All right, so let's get this thing started. Uh, As I do with all former players, let's go back in time and talk about your childhood. Where did you grow up? Uh, when did you get introduced to hockey and other sports you played? Basically, tell our listeners what it was like growing up Ben Hankinson. Okay. Well, we'll go back to the beginning. I grew up in St. Louis Park, Minnesota, till I was 10 years old. And we all of a sudden decided to move to Edina. I later probably figured out that it was a, maybe a sports move more than anything. Um, I had an older brother, Peter, and I have a younger brother, Casey, and we had a rink in our backyard till I was, you know, probably at, at five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten years old. Then we moved to Edina, and I didn't think anything of it. I, I signed up to play soccer that summer and, and get to know some kids in Edina. <laughs> we were moving, and I played soccer, and my parents never came to one soccer game I ever played. Isn't that terrible, all the great <laughs> things your parents do for you? 
You remember, they didn't come to a soccer game. Obviously, they didn't like soccer or they were busy moving. So 10 years old, we moved to Edina. I played uh, baseball, football, hockey, soccer, ended up being a one and done. I was a goalie. I loved it. It was so stupid I quit. Um, but I had an unbelievable, spoiled, rotten uh, upbringing. I had a great older brother who followed the rules and was a great athlete and a great role model, great student for me. So I think it made me um, kind of fight for my own attention and do things a little naughtier. So um, it was tough following him, uh, <laughs> but he couldn't have been a better uh, brother to show me the way. Um, but I played baseball, football, hockey, and soccer, like I said, and my dad was an athlete, um, in college and played a little pro football or banged around a little bit, I should say. And so he coached us all in all the sports, which was unreal. Now that I look back at it, the gift he gave us to coach us in football and hockey, he never played hockey, intramural hockey in Minnesota, played, coached us in, in every sport there was, all of us, uh, all the way up to probably like Bantams. And it was a great experience, and he didn't he didn't coddle us or anything, but he was fair. I remember in, in uh, baseball games, and I'd screw around, and I remember one time he kicked me off the field, and, he, and then he made me leave the entire facility, and I went in the woods and watched the game because I had to get a ride home from him. Um, I remember getting kicked out of Peter's practices and going and stealing money out of his car and going and buying stuff at the gas station. <laughs> so I had a... I had an awesome uh, childhood growing up with a with an incredible dad and mom and and not not a lot of worries in the world. We had everything we wanted. Um, we ended up uh, all graduating the three boys, Peter, Ben, and Casey, from Edina High School, and had a had a, had a lot of fun during those years and, and met a lot of good people. And, and it it, it kind of pushed me to you know where I met you, Pitt. So I had a, a just a, a great childhood, and in, in, in more than anything, um, not feeling like any of the sports were something you had to do. You just changed seasons and played every sport there was, and, and no pressure, no 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 one yelling and screaming at you, and feeling like you know they're 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 putting you in lessons or, or doing anything extra like just the way it is now. But we just you know just went from one to another sport. It's interesting. <clears throat> it's interesting because. You talk about how you, you had a backyard rink. Uh, when I first met you was when, uh, probably in college, my, my freshman year in college, because uh, your brother and I, uh, we were the same recruiting class. You came in a year later. Uh, first time I went over to your house, your backyard looks like a, a, a public park. Uh, <laughs> as a a full hockey rink, it, it had like a baseball diamond. I mean, your dad and mom, whoever came up with that, you know, to create that for the extra repetitions, uh, they were way ahead of uh, everyone because uh, everything's so specialized now and you had all of the specialization tools right in your backyard and fortunately, all of you and your brothers, you used them and all your friends. Yeah, and, and that's a great, yeah, it's great you point that out because you had a, a teammate that went over there and skated too uh, a couple times in the, probably the winter to go grab a dinner, Randy Scarda, right? And Randy went out there, well, that was Peter's roommate, and from the dorms, you remember, who was your roommate? Were you with Paletti your first year, your freshman year? Scott Bloom. Bloomer, that's right. So you were with Bloomer. So Scarda came over and jumped on the rink 
and started what younger brothers do. They go in the net. It wasn't me. It was Casey. So Casey, younger Casey, goes in the net. Scarta rips. You remember how hard he shot the puck. He took a spongy foam puck, took a full-out slap shot, hit Casey right in the face, and just started bleeding all over out of his nose, out of his mouth. (laughs) Randy with that chuckle. (laughs) I remember remember because I was still in uh, high school. I was a senior then when Randy and Randy was as big as the, you know, as the world back then and uh, strong. And, and uh, just, it was, I just always remember that my dad had that rink for probably 30 years and I would wake up and see him out there at two in the morning with the lights on flooding. And it made <laughs> me feel so cozy and comfortable in my bed, spoiled rotten, knowing I'd get out there and skate. And I, I, you're right. We just could play baseball back there. We had games with all the kids, hockey. I always got thrown in net because I didn't want to compete against Peter out there with his friends. So I'd play goalie all the time. And um, yeah, it was a ton of fun being able to to have a backyard. And that's why I think we moved from St. Louis Park into a big lot in Edina at the time. And it was, you know, probably an acre and a half, I think. Um, and we sold, they sold the house a few years ago to Andrew Walzer, but it was a, it's a, it was an awesome place to grow up. Yeah, that's, it, it was, I mean, it, it was uncommon for sure, to say the least. Um, you talked about having an older brother and kind of being a naughty guy to, to gain attention. And, you know, it might seem naughty, but, you know, I, I, I thought a lot of the stuff was, pretty doggone funny when I when I hear about it but when I first met your mom Bonnie uh, she told me the story about some ketchup and one of your brothers um, do you remember that <laughs> you bring back the good ones Peter she was I think it was the first time she left me at home this was in St. Louis Park she went to the grocery store she tells the story and uh, she was so worried about leaving me alone I think I was like eight years old or something like that. And, 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 and she left and then she was going through the checkout line. She called me before she went through with her groceries and I didn't answer. So I think she maybe left everything at the store, raced home, yelling my name. Uh, and it was Benji back then. (laughs) So she's like, Benji, Benji didn't answer. She ran around the house and then she found me upstairs in my room she whips the door open. I'm laying on the ground, blood all over my chest with a knife between my arm and my chest at the angle. Like when she comes in, she can see the knife uh, into my arm, blood all over the place. And then I jump up and I I poured ketchup all over my, my chest and all over probably the floor, probably I'm sure too. And so I pretended like I got stabbed or stabbed myself or whatever happened. She was so oh. mad at me. How did you think that was funny? <laughs> I mean, that could reach for attention. Yeah, I don't know, Peter. <laughs> I don't know. I'm still, I'm still up to some of those stupid tricks. But yeah, that's a, that's a. Uh, thanks for bringing that up. My mom didn't think it was funny. I obviously did. I'm sitting here giggling because I, I just remember doing pull-ups, and you would say something funny, and I could never get through it. A set of, of working out, uh, that's, <laughs> that's awesome. Uh, okay, let me get back on the rails here. Um, you know, you, you, you told us that you, you played a lot of sports, you had a, a great childhood, um, and you ended up playing college hockey. Do you remember when you had uh, 
the moment where you decided you wanted to pursue Division One hockey? Yes, I do. I remember I wanted to play college baseball. And I was ready my senior year in, in high school to have a really good season. And maybe it was my junior year. And, and no, it was my senior year. And, and, uh, and make my way to go play wherever I could. And I just, I love baseball. And so my senior year, you know, what's the most fun thing to baseball is to hit home runs. So my senior year, instead of working on probably the things I should have to try to play college baseball, I tried to hit home runs and I had a horrible year. All I did was, was swing for the fences and didn't have a good year. So I thought, all right, I'm in trouble there. And I was playing football and then I quit football and that's when I focused on hockey. And that was the year Peter um, got some attention and he was really good. And so he committed to Minnesota late after his senior year. So I knew, you know, he was going to the Gulf. So I thought, all right, you know, this is my, this is going to be, you know, my best shot. I loved hockey, obviously, too. And so that year, that senior year, my senior year is when I thought, all right, maybe I can play college hockey because baseball wasn't going to work out. And I just, you know, like hitting home runs. I had a young freshman on my team named Tommy Nevers, who was better than me as a freshman. And uh, he ended up going on to be a first-round draft choice by the Houston Astros in baseball and ended up being a pick by the Pittsburgh Penguins in hockey, too, which was crazy. crazy. So he was my freshman linemate, and he was putting up more points than me, but it was a good combination because he got me motivated to outscore him. And I think I probably had to switch an assist on the last game of the year to uh, to beat him (laughs) in scoring to not be beat by a freshman. But that's that kind of drove me to have some motivation and – and score some goals and, and bang around and, and, and try to get to, you know, play Division One hockey. So Peter was at Minnesota, and so that was a huge uh, opportunity for me that he created, like your younger brother, you know, to get a chance. So I was on the, the Gophers' radar, but I really wanted to do my go my own way and carve my own path. So I, I, I was hoping to go to Wisconsin. I ended up getting really close to going to St. Cloud. Wisconsin didn't offer me anything. St. Cloud offered me, you know, maybe like half or three quarter scholarship. That was right when Herb Brooks was coming in. Craig Dahl was a coach. And I ended up at the end of the day, right before I was about to commit to St. Cloud, Minnesota stepped up and, and gave me, you know, half a scholarship. And I jumped up and down and took it. And obviously it was a huge, you know, smart decision. But Peter, you know, definitely paved the way for me to give me an opportunity to get looked at and get that that chance. But that was like back in the day, Peter, when we didn't play in the USHL or, you know, the Gophers or these schools could could make those decisions later. You were probably, you know, I, you didn't commit till after your well after your senior year either with with Butts, right? When he finally convinced Wooger and that this was our guy. Or when did you commit? No, same. Yeah, same. It was after the season. And what's ironic. You talked about your brother, Peter, who he and I were the same recruiting class. Um, he, and I, he and I were late to go to commit to the Gophers. Uh, and I, I really didn't, I didn't have anyone. Uh, I, I didn't go to any visits. Uh, I had a few letters in the mail because we didn't have, you know, the cell phone and all that email at the time. Um, and I did meet with Butters. Uh, and he offered me a half scholarship and he offered your brother a half scholarship late as well. And what I thought was a pretty cool feather in our cap is that 
uh, out of that whole recruiting class. I don't know if there was anyone else that uh, was on a half scholarship out of that class, but your brother and I went on to become the captains uh, of the Gophers our senior year. And I believe, I know you did, uh, I'm, I'm assuming Casey became a captain as well. Uh, so not, you know, I, I think it's funny, Hank, because, you know, for people that aren't from Minnesota, Edina, where you grew up playing, uh, is a powerhouse in, in a lot of sports, uh, especially hockey. And you, you, you get a, you know, we, we all have our feelings, you know, you guys are called cake eaters, you know, you talk about you, every, you had everything as a kid, but you had every opportunity uh, but you used it, and uh, but when you get to college, it's everything's a level playing field because everyone is good, <laughs> you know. Uh, when yeah. you when you made the jump to college from well before we go to to, to college, you know, I want to talk about your your uh, high school years because uh, you talked about having a line mate Tommy Nevers, and there's another un unreal human being. Um, did you, did you, did you win a state tournament at the, at the high school level? You think we would have, or I would have with all the state championships, they won. No, but they, like getting to the state tournament was like winning the state tournament. My senior year, my junior year, I think we had seven plus division one hockey players that we lost to Damian Rhodes and to put Damian Rhodes on the map. Damien Rhodes yeah. ended up getting a scholarship to Michigan after they beat us. Uh, and, and he went to the state tournament that year. That was the year Edina had a – we were a number one team all year. We lost. So my senior year was kind of a rebuild. Uh, we weren't that great. We found a way to get to the state tournament. And then we ended up losing uh, in the state tournament two games. And we ended up with a, a record that was under 500. <laughs> so we weren't very good. But um, it, was, it was so awesome. To get there, so I mean, it still was a was a was a ton of fun getting there. But no, we never won a state tournament in high school. Okay, well, for all the non-Edina hockey people listening to this, you're not going to get any sympathy for that. But uh. <laughs> <laughs> Peter did win one a couple. His Peter won one his sophomore year. And then, uh, you know, the funny thing is, I'll give toot his horn a little bit because I said the same about Nevers. He was drafted in baseball and hockey, too, which is crazy because he got drafted by the uh, Houston Astros as well in baseball. And he was a good baseball player. That's crazy. I, Hank, I, I never knew that, you know, up until, you know, your senior year that your, your biggest hope was to, to play college baseball. I thought it was this hockey yeah, and you know what, Peter, like I probably wanted to play because Peter was playing hockey and do something that wasn't as hard of work as <laughs> playing hockey and grinding. Um, so, yeah, it was probably a safe way out for me not to have to uh, live up to the expectations of playing hockey. But, yeah, I like, I, I, I mean, I wasn't I wasn't as passionate about hockey. I didn't know I loved it as much until I certainly didn't know it would be my whole life like it is now, uh, to yeah. be honest. Yeah, isn't that funny how, you know, you just, uh, you throw mud on the wall and there's going to be certain areas where something sticks. Uh, but that's crazy because, yeah, same thing with me. I never thought I'd play college hockey and hockey's been my life. I'm 54 and it's it's in my life every single day. 
And you were, you had a lot of, you know, you were a, a hard-nosed player all the way through. And, and that's what, like, probably with me, I don't think I was until, like, my senior year where I finally realized in high school, and I didn't in high school even know how to grind and didn't know, like, what I was made out of or how I was going to, didn't even think about it, kind of get to those next levels until you kind of face a little adversity or sit out or the coach, you know, it's, it turns into a business, right, in college or, you know, I didn't realize it in high school, you know, coming probably from the cozy confines of Vidina where, you know, it's everything might be a little easier there because you had the backyard and you had, you know, uh, things maybe that other kids certainly don't have until until I got kind of released to the hounds and, and Minnesota, you know, isn't isn't like, you know, that's anything that's going from one cozy confine to maybe another. But not until I sat out and figured out, all right, like, you know, I, I got to grind here. And that's what you obviously your whole career, you know, you had to figure out how to grind. You could never sit back and, you know, jump on the ice, you know, to be on the power play or or any of that, too. And that's kind of when I finally hit hit kind of that wall to figure out. Yeah, that's why, you know, like when you said, like, I didn't score a lot of goals. I, you, everyone wants to score goals. But if you can't score goals, you better do something. Otherwise, you know, you're not playing hockey anymore. Yeah. And that's, uh, that's a realization that every player has to, uh, you know, they're faced with when you get to college. Because especially, you know, almost every college player is they come from being the best or one of the best on their youth team or their high school team and then you get put into a a pot with equally skilled and passionate players and now it's you know what are you going to do and for some players they can't get over that 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 hurdle that wall that comes up when they get there uh, because a lot of us have to adjust I mean in high school I was playing on the power play after high school never played on I played on the power play once in pro but (laughs) that was in a I was a minus one, so I never played again. But uh, you know, you you carve out your role. So you you make the jump to college hockey. You, you get you get uh, committed to Minnesota, and uh, it was a logical choice. Your your dad played football there. Your mom was was she on the dance team or something in Minnesota? Did... Yes, she was a, a, a cheerleader there. Yes. So, you, you know, it's, it's in the family, your older brother's there. So you go to college hockey, uh, go to Minnesota. When you jumped there, was it an easy transition or did it take you a few weekends to become an everyday player at that level? Uh, I, I know the story a little bit, but tell it. Yeah, I went in and you just think you, you, you go to Minnesota, you go to you know, whatever college you end up playing, whatever sport it is. And, you know, maybe I was just dumb to think you'd go, go in and, and probably play. I, I sat out almost half the season, I think. And the good the good news is it was the first half. So, you know, you you, you wanted to figure out, you know, okay, why, why am I not playing? It didn't make any sense until you just watch and learn. You know, you don't know what you don't know at that age. You just, you don't realize how you don't know anything really. <laughs> right. And then I, I watched, I watched, you know, until someone got hurt. I think we played probably mid 40 amount of games that year. And I played like in the low twenties. So I, I just had to figure out what to do. And that's, I think when I, when I 
figured out, okay, it's not, it's not going to be easy to score goals. So I started, you know, playing physical and, and, and kind of getting the rewards of, you know, doing the extra stuff and taking a lot of dumb penalties along the way. But, but uh, yeah, so it wasn't, no, it wasn't an easy transition at all. Like I wasn't, you know, you were a half scholarship. I was a half scholarship, meaning they, you know, half believed in you. Other guys on full scholarships are going to get the, usually the, the first opportunity to prove they can play. And so I had to, you know, kind of figure out my own path. But it was it wasn't easy at all, and we had, you know, like just who was a give a plug to Jack Bladerick or Jack Bladerick. That funny that that name comes up. He was the greatest influence on probably both of us too. But Bill Butters with the character and the perseverance, and he was your D coach, and I was a forward. But Butts taught me a ton about figuring out what you need to do to uh, you know to add value and play and be a good teammate. And, and uh, I know he was huge for you, and he was also huge for me to, to you know, play physical and, and be a good teammate. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's interesting because we, we, you have to choose at that time. You know, are you going to fight to be the player that you were, or are you going to do whatever it takes to just get into the lineup and get an opportunity? And I... I think college coaches, you, you have to do this. You, you have to be loyal to the players that were there uh, for, for the, the last few years. Give them a shot. But if, if you're not winning, then they're going to make changes. And unfortunately, it took you <laughs> half a year to, to get in there. But, man, once you got in there, I, I don't think you were ever a, a healthy scratch again. Uh, so in, in 1988, 89, that season was the best and the worst. I think it was your freshman year. Um, we ended up yeah, making... my sophomore year. Your 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 sophomore your junior year. So it was your sophomore year. Uh, we ended up making yes. it to the the final four, uh, which was held. Or now it's the Frozen Four. It was held in uh, in Minnesota at the St. Paul Civic Center. Uh, it was the best and worst season ever. <laughs> you know what do you remember about that year? I just remember how great that team was. Um, you just you had that feeling that you were going to win every game, even when you were down. Uh, it was a ton of fun because Dave Snuggrew, Tom Chorsky came back right from the Olympics. So to get those two guys thrown on your team up front, and I, I guys snuck into a couple games and played with Snuggy, who is one of my all-time favorites. Oh, was he good. And what a great, you know, uh, character he was you know not 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 like everything we've talked about he was more cerebral how he played and smart and it wasn't about hitting anyone or playing physical he was kind of more that Larry Olam mold but with between Snuggerud, Chorsky, Larry Olam, Todd Richards, Rob Stauber the best goalie I've ever played with, um, Bischoff, you know Tommy Peterson freshman <laughs> just a scrappy, scrappy freshman. A scrappy freshman. Remember, is that the year we started that season going to Europe? And Tommy freshman or Tommy Peterson was a freshman. He ended up playing a long time in the NHL yes. from Bloomington, Minnesota. A little sawed-off, right-shot defenseman. But he would he came in, you know, thinking he was a senior and challenging you, challenging everybody. You both happened to be right-shot defensemen. And I remember him coming after you, and we, we egged him on. Petey, if you want to be the guy on this team, you got to go through Pitter. 
you got to remember, I think he was in Europe. And finally, you two kind of squared off. And he was like thinking, all right, I'm going to take on Pitter. And whether it was going to be a wrestling match or a little bit of a fight, he squared off with you. And you guys were dancing around. And you gave one boom right with your foot to between his legs. And you dropped him. And we were all, it was so well deserved by Tommy Peterson. And to this day, uh, he, I think he laughs about that. God, was that good. I just interviewed him uh, last week. He was awesome. Um, it's just great to see how uh, you know the game is connected with so many of us. You know, it, it, we talked about that earlier. So after your freshman year, uh, there was a yeah. Show- hey, let me interrupt you here, P- Peter. Let me let me. Uh, sorry to interject, but your whole question was about the best and worst season. So that's why I just block it out. I can't even think about that once in a lifetime chance we had to play Harvard in the championship game and we started hits a post or whatever happened, we lose in overtime. So it, it, you don't realize that at the time, you know, it was the most crushing thing I'd been through at the time, but you look back and, you know, it's a chance of a lifetime to win a, a title and we didn't get, we didn't win it, but it was still obviously an awesome experience, but I just, I kind of block it out because it was heart, heart, Breaking and still to this day, it's just as heartbreaking. Have you ever watched uh, the game? No, no, never. I have you. I haven't either. <laughs> someday, no. maybe someday we we just get a couple bottles of wine, hang out in your new house, and we'll watch it. <laughs> oh, if it's even uh, you, you probably do. You think you have a VCR tape of it somewhere? Uh, I, I, I do have it. I just have never watched it. So I don't know if it's still, you know, I don't know how long those VHS tapes, uh, last, but all right. So we talked about, you know, you're a big fish in a small pond at the high school level. You go to college and now you're a small fish and you're just fighting to, for an opportunity. Um, and then we talked about some players they, and we, we know many of them that they think that they're a certain player, get to college, and they're going to continue to be that player, and they fight to, to, to have that, and it just doesn't work out because they're unable to evolve. Uh, I think both you and I, uh, I mean, I, I've learned a lot through coaching and through my boys of, you know, the, the mentality of being uh, a point producer. Um, but for, for you and I, I think it was always just, we're happy to be here. Uh, we're going to do whatever we can just to get an opportunity. Um, and if we were a healthy scratch later in our career, we're like, all right, well, that might get me another year down the road because less wear and tear in my body. But, you know, when did you make the shift from being a, a point guy, you know, a skills guy, because in high school, I mean, you were you were over a point a, a game player, and you get to college, and now you have to adjust. How did you do that? Well, I broke in doing whatever I can to, to play, and that was a fourth line role. And you know, in the fourth line, you're you're not going to get in the power play. You're not going to get many points. So I just, you know, playing games was the stat that I cared about more than goals and assists. Obviously, those were were bonus. But it was like me and John Anderson and Jake Ennebeck, the tree line. I remember Doug Wu, we played the Russian 
uh, Riga team one time, and, and uh, none of us were very skilled. John Anderson was smart and skilled and good, had good hands, but Jake and I were two two, two <laughs> more limited wingers. And, and after one of the periods, Wu kept us on the bench. You know, we have to cross the ice, obviously, to get down to the locker room, and he screamed at us walking across with them the whole way, um, like how bad we were. And are you kidding me? Doug Wu, like, come on. Like, you think John Anderson and Jake Ennebeck and me are going to have a good game against a Russian team? <laughs> like, that's just, that's just not being a good coach. <laughs> you, think you, you think we can play against those guys. But I just, uh, I, I stuck with it. Finally, I did score some goals. I still am so mad, and it doesn't matter, but my senior year, I had 21 goals. One, I scored the first game of the year, and they announced Ken Janander's name, but as a good captain, I didn't change it. And then I scored the last game of the year in Maine. We lost, and they gave it to Bischoff, um, which was fine. So I ended up with 19, but I still ended up with, I think it was 50 goals and 50 assists. So I, I scored enough to, to, to you know, be somewhat relevant. Um, but, but no, it's just, I wasn't that skilled. I, didn't, I, I don't think I was a smart hockey player. I don't think they had uh, online stick handling back then, and you didn't either. So I didn't have sweet hands. Um, I mean, if they had that, if we spent some time stick handling and, and handling the puck and, and being able to realize that, you know, if you don't have to look down at the puck and you can, you know, have some skill handling the puck, then your eyes can, can kind of start surveying what's going around on the ice. You might be a little bit of a smarter that can help you play smarter. But um, I just, I, I honestly, that's what I don't regret about my career, Peter. I, if I, if I did it again, I would play different and smarter, and, and everyone would when they look back and play pro longer. But I wasn't that smart, and I wasn't that skilled, and thank God I made the most out of it, trying to be a little bit of a, of a crusher. Bill Butter said you, you come in as a, as a crusher, and, you know, what, what is it? You start as a crusher, the next thing you know, you try to be a rusher, and you'll end up being an usher in the stands. <laughs> and that. You know, that's kind of stuck with me too. But, you know, it's more about just doing what I had to do to play. But I, I one year I played with Jimmy Dowd uh, in the minors in Utica, New York. And uh, I had 35 goals. And that was playing against you in the tough Hershey Bears. So I did put up 35 goals one year. That was a far cry from any other years I had. But, I, I mean, I probably scored a little bit in the minors too. But, um, no, it's it's hard to put that puck in the net. No question. you got to be skilled and, and smart, and I, I wasn't really either. Well, you're, <clears throat> you're very humble. But in 1987, uh, with the limited skills and uh, limited IQ, <laughs> you were drafted in the, the sixth round, 107th overall, to the New Jersey Devils. Uh, when did you find out that news? Was that a big, big day for you? Yeah, huge day. It was uh, a day I will never forget because I didn't know it was the draft. <laughs> it was I was raking in the backyard. I honestly was raking, and I got a call from my mom. She said, uh, I think it was Marshall Johnston or Eddie Tomlinson was a scout. And they're both still around, and they're both still in hockey. And they, that was in 1987, like you said. I didn't even know it was a draft, and there was New Jersey Devils calling to say we picked you in the draft, and I didn't know what it was. <laughs> Isn't that terrible? How crazy is that to what it is now? And I go to every draft, and it's on TV. 
But uh, so that was fabulous because like anything in life, it was a boost of confidence. It was like, you know, a picture in your iPhone when you looked really good. It was like, hey, on this day, I felt pretty good about myself. And it motivated me to take it even more serious and try to play, you know, pro hockey or play in the NHL. And the greatest thing was after my senior year at University of Minnesota, when I turned pro, I find I didn't even really realize. I looked at the Devils lineup thinking I'm, I'm going to go play in Jersey and make that team. And you don't even realize there's a whole team below it of really good players in the minors. And that's how naive and stupid I was. Never leaving, you know, a 12-mile radius of St. Louis Park, Edina, and the University of Minnesota. Um, that, that there is hockey other places. And all the players in the minors were from, you know, Canada and, and uh, Europe and, and everywhere else. We had a lot of college players going into Utica that year but it was a the draft was awesome it was a great you know motivator and to to play pro and then have another challenge and have more than anything the lifestyle is absolutely incredible most fun I've ever had making that transition and playing pro hockey for a few years but um yeah I, I had no idea outside our little bubble of Minnesota hockey in high school that it's done differently everywhere else yeah that it's that's an interesting uh, point because that that was uh, I, I wouldn't say it was a challenge. I would say it was uh, it was something that I really enjoyed because we were sheltered. We we were we're in a bubble. You know, we that the whole time that we were at Minnesota, I think the only non-Minnesotans that played on those teams were John Blue and Steve McSwain. Otherwise, it was all Minnesotans. Did you, was there any non-Minnesotans on, on your uh, last teams? And then, you know, when you get to pro hockey, now you got the world is in the locker room. And it was just awesome just hearing how everyone else grew up and what their experiences were. Right. I was in uh, Tampa uh, towards the end of my career, and I was playing in the NHL. I got traded there, and I was not even playing very much. And I was thinking sitting in between periods in my stall and I was thinking and hardly even sweating because I hardly played. And I thought this could be like my last year. I am terrible. I, I hardly play on this team and we weren't a playoff team. And I just, just in my head, I'm like, obviously I'm not a very good hockey player. And so I'd start <laughs> looking around the room and I see, you know, Russia, Sweden, Canada, every other country. And I realized, wait, I'm the only American on this entire team. There wasn't another American on the team that I thought, you know what? I'm pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm the only American on this team. And uh, that got me through the rest of that season. But that was my, that might have been my last game, or it was definitely my last uh, time in the NHL uh, where I was actually playing. Well, we don't. But, yeah. Like, it's, 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 we didn't have any. No, in Minnesota, there wasn't. I when I played, I didn't play with Blue or McSwain. I played, you know, a little bit with Swainer on a couple of tournaments after. But uh, no, like it was all Minnesota kids. It was uh, it was nuts. Not until you get to like I went to my first training camp and you too, Pitter, because coming from college when you don't fight and now you're in camp and and you know you, if you're you know got to go into that toolbox and figure out what tools you had. I mean, I started fighting in camp first first hockey fights in my life where it was like, oh, you know, you don't know what you're doing, hardly. So, I mean, that was just crazy.
A quick word from our sponsor, Sniper's Edge Hockey. Sniper's Edge Hockey is your one-stop shop for your at-home hockey training needs on and off the ice. Find the perfect start to your at-home training area with slick tiles, synthetic ice, or a rink liner. Or upgrade your home setup with one of our top quality training tools to help you work on soft hands, all of your deeks and dangles, perfect your one-timer, and improve the power and accuracy of your shot. Find it all online and in stock for immediate shipping at snipersedgehockey.com. I can go in so many directions right now. Um, you played your first NHL game. Let's start here. Um, that was a, a pretty, I mean, I remember that 24 hours when you got the call that you're getting called up and all that. What's the story behind your first NHL uh, game? Uh, so I'm in Utica. Robbie Fatorik was my coach the year before in Utica. I played for Herb Brooks, and that was awesome. So that was my first year. So my second year pro, I get the call. So I make the trip from Utica to New Jersey. So I go to check into the hotel the night before the game, and there's a guy in the lobby at the desk where you check in, probably six feet away in a chair, and he's reading the paper. And I check in, uh, Ben Hankinson, and I have a room, and the guy flips down a corner of the paper and says, we effing called you up? Holy <laughs> shit. And he puts his computer back up. And it was the coach of the New Jersey Devils who just stayed in the hotel too. His name was Herb Brooks. He was the Devils coach from St. Paul, Minnesota. And when I check in, I'm so excited for my first game. I want to get a big welcome from the coach. And he says, holy frick, we just called you up? And then he said, holy shit, and put his paper back up. That was it. That's all he said to me. <laughs> How great is that? So I played the next game uh, against Tampa. And like this is how stupid I am. I think I scored. I think I know maybe the first game I didn't score. I think I had um, what I don't know what happened, but I had I think I had two goals in the next game uh, playing in the NHL. I had three goals in four games. So I had four games play no. Yeah, I think it was. Two goals and an assist in four Two games. Goals. Yeah, I had uh, – anyways, whatever. I scored and they sent me back down. But uh, it was it was the greatest, the, the most fun experience ever, you know, getting that first NHL game. It was so cool. You, you, you have some early success. You get sent down, but uh, you made a decision, and I think that that started in college, but – you can't make that full transition because there's not fighting in college, but uh, you were a physical player and you didn't shy away from that. What, when did it happen You know that, that you made that transition where the only way that you're going to be able to sustain a job in the NHL was to be you know, physical and to drop the gloves from time to time? Well, thanks to Herbie Brooks, God rest his soul. He was a coach in Utica. He signed with the Devils. Tommy McVie was the NHL coach in New Jersey. They were struggling. And I think Herbie thought, okay, they'll fire Tommy McVie and I'll get up to the NHL. And that's probably what, what he was told, you know, why he took the job. So he's down in the minors. He thinks temporarily. And he, he did not like spoiled rich kids from Medina with big backyards that had everything, baseball fields and all that stuff, right? So I go to camp, and like I tell you, I, I get in a few fights in NHL training camp, my first fights in my life. I probably had, say, three or 
say three fights in training camp. So I go down to the minors and Herbie's a coach in Utica, which is in the middle of nowhere, right? And in, in, in upstate New York. And I loved it there. It was fabulous. But Herbie in training camp, I get in a couple more fights. And so before the season, we're doing a stretch and Herbie says to me, and he you know, probably doesn't like me at the time still, but I'm maybe growing on him a little bit because I'm doing things that he didn't think, ah, this kid fights, good. Um, so he looks at me, I have a black eye. And he says, see this kid, this Hankinson kid. He said, Hank, he goes, you got a black eye there from fighting, right? And I looked at him, I nodded my head, and he said, uh, if you're doing your job, that black eye is going to go back and forth all year long. I expect a lot of fights out of you this year. <laughs> he says that to me, yeah, like right in front of the whole team. And I was like, all right, good. That's all I needed to know. It scared the shit out of me. But, I mean, so Herbie just basically told me, you know, this is what you have to do, kid, if you want to, you know, do what I want you to do here. So that was a that was a pretty big wake-up call right there. And the, one of the first games I knocked out a kid on the other team, which was lucky, because I thought I was pretty tough. The, the, the crowd in Utica went crazy. And then I proceeded to get beat up probably – for sure, twelve more times that year where I got I got beaten up pretty good <laughs> after after leading off with a good fight. Everyone must have been really disappointed after that. <laughs> I, I I think of fighting because um, you know we're we're as Americans we're we're at a disadvantage when it comes to that. I mean the game has changed now, but back then I mean fighting there there was a there was a role. And you, you could fill that role. Uh, and I didn't, we didn't have any experience until you turned pro and you you're, could be going against a guy from, from Canada uh, that, that, that has been fighting since they were 14, 15, 16 years old. Um, I was scared every game that I played. Uh, when you got in a fight, I mean, because you weren't fighting middleweights. I mean, you were fighting the toughest guys in the NHL. Um, did you fight Domi, Probert, all those guys? No, but um, I did. That would have been nuts. I would hardly be able to put together sentences if I did because our friend Doug Zmolik did, and I, he's a tough, tough man. Um, but I did fight a couple guys that were leading the NHL and fighting majors that year, a kid, uh, a player named Chris Simon oh. in uh, Quebec. No. With the Nordiques. He had hair down his back. Yeah, he was tough as nails. I had a, I had a, a couple fights. I think I played against Hartford, and I had two fights against a guy named Potvin, who led the league in fighting majors one year, and a guy named Jansons, who was tough too. Yes. And I did fine in both those fights. And then the next day we played... Quebec and he's thinking okay this kid's getting in fights he's obviously a, trying to make his way a tough kid or whatever so um we were playing Quebec in Quebec and I I something I don't know what happened but um I I, I wasn't doing anything and I figured I had to stir it up a little bit and we crossed paths and he looked at me funny and like you know kind of one of those you just are going to get in a fight and so I fight him and I didn't realize he was a lefty so he hit me like when I was standing straight up, he hit me going down and he hit me when I was almost down. He knocked me out. So I was at the bottom of the pile. I was knocked out and I and I and I got up and I went to the wrong penalty box. I didn't know what happened. And then they just sent me off the ice. 
And so, you know, back in the day, which is sad to say, like, obviously I had a concussion. I didn't, you know, the trainer knew it too. But so I ended up finishing the game. And then what did I figure I had to do? I had to go try to fight him again after he just pummeled me. So I go out there again and I line up next to him. I said, let's go. You got to give me another chance. And I think he said, hey, I already pounded you once, kid. I'm not fighting you again. And I, like, cross-checked him or whatever, acted tough and, and, and proceeded to try to hit him every time I was out there against him, probably for three more shifts or whatever. I played a limited role, but I, my legs were shaking where I was scared to death, like you said, Pitt, that I didn't want to have to do that, but I felt like I have to let him know that I'm not afraid of him and I'm going to keep, you know, playing the way I needed to play. And, um, you know, it's kind of crazy, as stupid as it sounds for you know, all your fans or hockey fans listening to this, but it's, I know it's a messed up mentality to talk about all this, but I mean, I really wasn't that tough, but I had enough courage probably to, to either face your fear or realize I, I had to do this. And, and Jacques was, I earned the respect of Jacques, and Billy Guerin still laughs about it because I came back to the bench, and he's like, he said I yelled to everyone on the bench, like, hey, you think one of you guys would have told me he was a lefty? <laughs> about Simon. <laughs> yeah, that guy, he he hit me. He was playing for Washington at the time. There was a bit of a scrum. He hit me on top of my helmet. Like, he came across the, the pile and hit me on top of the head, on top of my helmet, and he almost knocked me out. I mean, the, <laughs> you guys, that, that was a scary role. So um, hats off to you. Not an easy job to to go out there every day knowing that that that's what that's your goal. You know, that that's your goal scoring. That's your shift where where you make the impact. Uh, not easy. I, I hated that part of hockey, but uh, I, I applaud. The players that were, like you said, courageous enough to, to fill that role, uh, not easy. Uh, let's go back to... Well, and even, even worse there is that, even worse is that, sorry to interrupt, but the guys that that have to do it to protect their teammates. I mean, that, that certainly falls under that role with you and I, too. But, I mean, there were guys, like the heavy guys on the team, like those Proberts. Like, their stories were, you know, they didn't even like some of their teammates that they had to fight for, I'm sure. Like some of the young kids that come up and do stupid stuff, like that's where, you know, you have a, a career of doing that. Oh, that's a tough job being the policeman for all those kids, you know. Oh, crazy. So I I don't know if you had this, but uh, I was not a top four defenseman <clears throat> any time in my career. And I always had a relationship with the toughest guys on the team. Uh, I would take them out to dinner right away at the beginning of the season <laughs> because then I'd buy them dinner because uh, I, I needed them because uh, I, I was scared and we we worked together as, as, a, as a team. I, mean, I remember Peter Orwell down in Florida on the bench saying, Peter, I haven't, you know, I'm out next, you're out next, uh, nothing's going on, try to run someone over and just get out of the way, I'll be right there. I'm like, all right. You know, did you have that relationship yeah. with some players uh, that you play with? Yeah, yeah. I, I I didn't know that until you kind of figure out, like, when you move from one team to the next, all these guys, if they liked you or didn't like you, was a pretty big deal if they were really tough. And I had that. I went to uh, Detroit, and I was up with their NHL team, 
for a couple weeks. So I, they told me to get a place to stay. So I was comfortable there and, and thinking I was going to be there. And I didn't end up working out. So they ended up moving me. But while I was there, uh, Stu Grimson was there. And so I, I got to know him a little bit. And he was as tough as anyone in the league, you know, in the history of the NHL, one of the toughest guys around. So I went over to his house. Yeah, for dinner a few times with my wife, Gwen, and got to know him. So the next year, I wasn't good enough to stay in Detroit, so I went to Pittsburgh. Herb Brooks was a scout there, got me a tryout. I tried out for the team, and during the tryouts, uh, we had an exhibition game against Detroit. So I was running around trying to play physical and figure out how I was going to make the Pittsburgh Penguins. And so I get in a fight, and uh, I actually do – pretty well and then I'm still running around after Stu Grimson is playing in that game he comes out and says hey uh you know Barry Smith or one of the assistant coaches told me to to settle you down Hank let's go we're going and and I know Stu Grimson enough to say Stu you know I'm not fighting you he goes well you have no choice Hank I'm, I'm out here to straighten you out and uh, I said, Stu, I'm not fighting you. I said, I'm going to cross-check you and, and do whatever I can, but I'm not dropping the gloves with you. And thank God I knew Stu well enough where he, he like, off the drop of the puck, he turned to challenge me, and I cross-checked him and slashed him. And then he didn't drop his gloves. He pushed me back and, you know, basically looked like he challenged me. And it may have looked like I was very careful not to look like I was <laughs> didn't want to be scared to fight him. But I ended up, you know, obviously pushing and shoving with him. And then we skated away or I skated away, obviously. But to your point, like those relationships with those guys, that saved me a concussion right there. Yeah. I know that. <laughs> uh Let's go back to your uh, time when you were in Utica. You, you mentioned uh, a player that you played with, Jimmy Dowd. You guys went out for a, a test drive, testing out some car. Tell that story. Oh, Peter. Um, so we had a, a, one of the sponsors was a car dealership. And Jimmy was looking for a new car, and he wanted a four-wheel drive. And there was a car at this dealership. It was an Oldsmobile dealership, and it was a used Jeep. And the reason Jimmy liked it is because he was used. It was cheaper. It was a Jeep, uh, not a Jeep like a Wrangler Jeep, but a Jeep like Cherokee and a four-door. And it had these huge mud flaps, Yosemite Sam, and it said, back off. And I think (laughs) the mud flaps are the reason he wanted to buy the car. So we go there on a test drive, and it was a, a snowstorm, and it was snowing like crazy. So we take the car for a test drive, and he's like, yep, I want to buy this car. So the guy's at the Oldsmobile dealership, and it was getting late. It was like 7.30. They closed at 8. It was snowing hard, so they wanted to get out of there. But they said, you, you got to take a test drive on this new Oldsmobile Bravado. It's a new SUV that came out, and it has auto sense track four-wheel drive. So you don't have to put it in four-wheel. The wheels can automatically sense when it needs to kick into four-wheel drive. So take this for a spin. No pressure. You don't have to buy it. But I want you to try it because I think you'll like this one even more than that Yosemite Sam Jeep. So we take it for a test drive. Jimmy's driving around. He said, yeah, it's kind of nice. I'm not going to buy it. I'm going to get Yosemite Sam. And so I said, well, go in this uh, shopping mall over here. Let's do. Let's drive it around the parking lot and see how the four-wheel drive works. So he drives it around and... He doesn't get too crazy. I said, Jimmy, come on, gun it around here. Let's do some donuts. And he does one or two. And then I said, just let's really get this thing spinning. He goes, you you here, you want to drive? I said, yes. So I start driving it and I start doing fishtails all over the lot. And there's not many cars there because it's a big snowstorm. 
So I start gunning it, and I, I take it too far, obviously, and I start spinning, and we hit a dry patch, and we flip the thing. So we flip the test drive, brand new Oldsmobile Bravado. And, of course, the knuckleheads that we are, we don't have seatbelts on. And you don't realize how wide one of those cars are, cars are until you're on your side with the other guy and the passenger laying right on top of you. So we flip the car in dead silence for 15 seconds. And then he was like, are you okay? Yeah, are you okay? Yeah. And we just bust a nut laughing, like full out, can't stop laughing. He's laying on top of me, and the steering wheel's there, and we can't move. And the next thing you know, the mall, the, the, the mall security or police comes, and he has to, you know, climb up, like, I don't know, the underside of the car, and he looks in. He's like, is everything okay? Like a full panic, and we're in there, like, laughing. And it's obviously not funny, but it was like one of those moments where it was like, how did this happen? I am such an idiot. And we could hardly crawl out of that car. It's so hard when you're laying on top of each other. And then the guys from the dealership came. And thank God, like, that it was a sponsor or, you know, probably worse. But they came out and they all had to see what happened. And they they took us around to the bottom of the car and said, here's a good chance for you to see the suspension now. These things are built like, like no other car. And Jimmy says, I'll take the Yosemite Sam. And I, I I can't believe, like, I didn't get in more trouble for that. Herb Brooks called me in the office like a week later and said, is there something you want to tell me? And I said, uh, no. And he said, yeah, I, I, I got a report that you were, uh, he, he thought I was, he called it burning the candle at both ends, Hank. You're out drinking and driving. And so he thought it was a. Uh, uh, you know what we were drinking which we were stone sober which is, is sad to say that i would do that and do something so stupid but yeah terrible story <laughs> not terrible uh you were safe you were in a not crowded parking lot <laughs> it's so good uh one one memory that just popped into my head was when you played for the golfers um and we you know since we stopped playing till now there's been a lot of innovations in technology and sticks and equipment and stuff but when we played for the golfers there there was a technology in skate blades called switchets um and i remember you you were you you had these blades on and would you it, similar to today uh today you can just switch out the the steel but the switch it blades that was like the took the whole thing and we're playing in the game and all of a sudden it's like you're on a skateboard you got one foot kind of pushing <laughs> uh you had lost one of your blades <laughs> remember, remember that good analogy yes good analogy todd roloff pancaked me in the corner and smoked me and the reason i was wearing those skates jack blatherwick had a friend that uh, Olson, um, oh, I forgot his first name. He was a rollerblade guy, and he was an uh, entrepreneur and invented these lightweight boots. They were recreational that you could put rollerblades on and switch up, like you said, to ice skates. And so I obviously, I should have had the rollerblades on playing, but I had the ice skate part on, and it popped out. Yeah, when roll-off hit me, and I had to gimp across the entire ice, and Bill Butters is dying laughing on the bench, and Woog is furious <laughs> at me because then I had to gimp across the whole ice with Harry Broadfoot, our equipment manager, to get my skates 
put back together and and back on so I missed a couple shifts or the rest of the period or I probably set out the rest of the game but I literally had a shoe on one foot like you said on a skateboard and a skate on the other and those Jack Blatherwick um, had me I wore those in the NHL and guys used to laugh at me because they were plastic boots with a foam insert and then they didn't have eyelets they had like a cross little uh, hook on each side that they hooked back and forth crisscross uh, so they were just absolutely awful to look at, but I was such an idiot that I wore them. Oh, Hank, you just, I, I think of you and I smile. <laughs> so good. Um, one, one thing that happens when you decide to, to make a career out of hockey is you, you, you have that day when you have to answer the question, can I do it another season or is it over? Uh, what was that like for you when you had to have that conversation? Well, I had a, a son, my oldest, Mac, in 1997. I was playing in Orlando. I was getting further away from the NHL. That was the IHL equivalent to the AHL now. It's a great place to play. Probably when you make a decision to go play in Orlando, you're doing it, some of it for the son and the fun, too. But once he had a baby... And, and unfortunately, I wasn't scoring goals. and I was getting a lot of penalty minutes and banging around. I thought, you know what, it's probably time. And that goes back to probably me wanting to play baseball. I loved hockey, but I didn't love it enough to, to not have an end game to it where I didn't want to just keep banging around in the minors. And I decided I was going to possibly sign with the Devils back with the team that drafted me, but I would have been in the minors for sure. And I had a son, and I was fighting, and I decided to, you know, see what else was out there. And I didn't think I was going to be an agent, but I, I looked around and figured out I'm not going to play hockey anymore. We both had the same agent, Jeff Solomon. The phone wasn't ringing to Jeff's uh, any offers or anything coming in real strong. So I didn't really have any problem, honestly, quitting hockey. And I know, you know, to spin it back on you, I remember – in probably, I don't know what year it was, probably in about the same time um, when I was kind of banging around, but it was in, it was in probably for you, like 93 or 94, you had played like, you know, four or five years pit and we had worked out together. And I can't remember if you were still with Hershey or banged around. I don't know. You definitely weren't with Ottawa, but the Minnesota Moose were coming in town and Glenn Sonmore wanted you to play for the Moose. And you were thinking about signing with the Moose and you were even talking about retiring and not playing hockey after four or five years of banging around with Philly's team. And you hadn't played, I don't think an NHL game. Nope. I don't think you ever played with Philly at that time. And you were almost going to quit and hanging up, and you ended up rattling off 400 NHL games in about eight years in the NHL after that. So I know, spinning it back on you, there was a time where you, it's, it's, it's the craziest turnaround ever, where you were about to quit, and then all of a sudden you just played full-time NHL and were captain of the Ottawa Senators, and it's, it's a, that's a remarkable story in turn of events. Well, thank you. Yeah, um, we have those moments. That, 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 that was more my wife. Uh, she was pre-med at the time, and <clears throat> Glenn knew that. Uh, so he, he, he was a great salesman and said, hey, your wife can go to medical school. You can still pursue hockey, just not at the highest level. And she was the one that said, uh, you know, Ottawa was the only other offer that we had that was associated with an NHL team. So 
we ended up going there. Yeah, opportunities are so huge. So you talk about uh, Jeff Solomon, who who is our agent, and he's he's with uh, is he is he the GM in LA now, or assistant? He he was the interim GM uh, or was the GM when uh, the GM stepped aside down in, in Anaheim, and then and then now Pat Verbeek. Uh, took the job, and so Jeff is uh, assistant general manager. Okay, with the, he 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 was with me for a long time when I got in the agent business, and then uh, jumped over to the L.A. Kings, and now the Anaheim Ducks. Yeah, so he was he was an agent before he uh, took a, a brass job with the NHL. Um, how did you know? For me, I I didn't have a clue what I was going to do when I retired, like not a clue, and it took me years to, to figure it out um how was that transition for you because you end up becoming a family advisor player agent how did how did that transition happen well jeff solomon was the big reason i got into it he was our agent like you said and and he offered me an opportunity to you know be an agent based in minnesota we have obviously a lot of good hockey players coming out of here and more now than, than even then. But he said, why don't you um, be an agent with me, Hank? And you can, uh, you know, roll out of your bed, recruit players and, you know, help me, you know, get these guys, you know, eventually do the contracts, but start recruiting some players and get some good players and you can make some money doing it. And actually Brian Lawton and Mike Liute were two other agents that I, I, I ended up working with as well that offered me the same opportunity. And it came down to, um, first, it, it wasn't what I wanted to do. I wanted to get into financial planning or something else. And I went for a couple weeks down to uh, Piper Jaffrey, which is a fun, big financial planning institution. I was going to do like uh, trading, uh, like high, you know, on your feet, you know, kind of similar to what Brian Bellows does now. And, and it's, 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 I mean, he's making, you know, big time decisions, like without even, you know, having a chance to breathe. He never even eats lunch. And, and those guys are, are busy with the market, you know, with trends and, and, and quick transactions on, on things. And so I was going to do that, but the market took a tank. And so I put a pause on it and, and said, you know what, I'll, I'll try working with Jeff Solomon as an agent and give it a shot. Even though I didn't really want to do it, I, I decided I'm going to give the agent thing a shot. And I was going to either work with Lawton and Liu, and they had a bigger company, or with Jeff Solomon, who was my agent. And I loved Jeff Solomon. He was a, a lawyer out of New York area, New Jersey, and was cutthroat, always did a great job on my deals. And, and Lawton and Liu were more of a bigger firm. But I thought, you know what, I'll jump in with Jeff and give this a shot. And it was 100% commission. So I didn't make a penny until I recruited a player. And eventually he made it to the NHL and, and got a paycheck. And then I would, you know, get a percentage of that. So it was about five years of just grinding and out until, you know, some of our players ended up, you know, playing in the NHL or making some money before I made money. But it was, a, it was something that I didn't think I was going to do. But took a shot at it, and it's been 23 years now of doing something I absolutely love. So it's crazy how it how it ended up working out. But you know, just being probably more than anything attributing kind of why I've done it so long is 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 being a player, knowing what agents do, knowing what good agents do, 
um, probably being not so great of a hockey player and jumping around to different teams and using that as a good way to help kids, you know, kind of do what I didn't do or kind of, you know, realize that mistakes I made or, or how to, you know, help these kids, you know, get to where they want to get and stay there. Yeah, and, you know, the experiences that you had as, as a player uh, obviously help because, um, you know, the more interviews that I do, everyone <clears throat> has a similar story. You know, we all play the sport, but every story is so different. So for you to be able to, I mean, you, you, you get instant credibility as an agent if you're a former player just because of all the experiences that you've had. And, and when I got in, there were probably more lawyers than there were ex-players. Now it's, it's flipped a bit where there's a lot more probably ex-players and lawyers. And I think a big reason is uh, with the salary cap and they took a lot of different uh, clauses and, and, and made, made all the contracts like more cookie cutter, more simple, where you're arguing about, you know, um, well, when you're rookie, you have an a entry-level system that you're locked into. So, you know, it's not, it's not a lot of difference of, of one contract for the next except for the, the numbers. But they, they kind of change a lot of kind of how you can go about and when you can negotiate and, and, and some of the, the different option years and things like that. So I think it took a lot of the, you know, having to be a lawyer as a, as a big advantage to now maybe understanding you know, uh, the marketplace, your player, and, and knowing, you know, kind of where he fits in with his team across the league. And it kind of now is kind of probably tipped to where being an ex-player and understanding and having those relationships helps a little more. Well, that's <clears throat> that's what it is. I mean, when you decide on a family advisor or an agent, uh, it's, it's a relationship that's hopefully going to last for a long time. And, uh, to when you get into that field, uh, you know they, they, it's always been said that you know good news travels fast, bad news travels faster. You know if you if you if you have a a name that you know is in question, you're not going to last in that business at all. So uh, you have a ton of integrity, and it speaks volumes to why you've been able to do what you do for 23 years. Uh, Family advisors, agents. Now, this is more for the boys' side. I don't, I don't think, I don't know if you represent any female players, but um, when someone, you know, you don't know anything about this, if you got a, a player that's pretty good and parents don't know anything about hockey, you know, do they reach out to you? Do you seek them out? How does that whole process work? It's, yeah, it's a great question, and it, it's kind of confusing, I think, because sometimes when, when you have a son or daughter who's really good at whatever it is, but specifically hockey, and you're, you're seeing other players like commit to schools or accelerating, and when they start talking, they, they figure out, well, you know, he is a family advisor, and I don't, and that's why, you know, he's getting what he's getting, and maybe we need to get a family advisor because we're not getting that same attention. And it, it, it doesn't work that way, really. If you're good enough, they're going to find you, whether it's a school or, you know, a league, whether it's the USHL, the draft, or the high school elite league, or, you know, whatever it is, 
Um, you know, there's all these teams have all these scouts and there's so many different leagues that, you know, they're going to find you and that's their job. It's a business. People get paid to find good hockey players and you can make a lot of money by drafting Jake Gensel in the third round and he hits and is a top player in the NHL. That scout, like say Scott Bell, you know, can gets promoted over that. So, you know, back to your question about how do you go through that process? It's, it, I don't want to be old school and say that, you know, if you're good enough, they're going to find you and it's just going to, you know, it, it's going to work out. But um, there's kind of a, a, a interesting, you know, way to look at it and or not interesting, but there's, there's agents and I'm an NHL agent. So I work with NHL players, but then there's a whole nother family advisor arm to it where you actually pay someone uh, say two, three thousand, five thousand dollars a year to help your son or daughter get to that next level. And that's where it isn't exactly like I, I described before, if you're good enough, they find you because sometimes, you know, like let's say it's not the Minnesota Gophers or the Wisconsin Badgers. Like you can't go to, you know, the Wisconsin Badgers or the Minnesota Gophers and say, hey, here's a player that's really good. You know, he's interested or the kid calls and says, I'm interested in playing for the Gophers. Can you come watch me? Well, that, that never happens because they, they find and they're picky and they go find you. But if you're talking about like St. John's, or Division Three, St. St. Olaf, or you know whatever these NHL teams or USHL teams sometimes like that's where family advisors at the age of maybe you know 15, 14, 16 years old they can help make those contacts with different Division Three schools where everyone wants to play Division One, but you know now you can play in the USHL and play junior for a few years and still maybe not even play Division Three. Because Division Three is really good hockey, but family advisors, if you you know have a niche where you pay them and, and you can they can help you get to the next level. Where me as an agent, I don't really do that, you know, and charge you know kids to help them get to you know different leagues. I I not to sound you know like like I'm better, but like I I now work with guys that have been drafted or are in college and really good players and are selecting you know teams to play for in the in the nhl but there are a lot of good family advisors though that can help uh families but you have to pay according to the ncaa rules you can't really get anything for free but it's it's a it's a it's a really you know kind of not not clear area for parents to to go through and the best people to talk to are, are usually the coaches and i'm a sounding board for a lot of friends and families where you know if they just if they just put in the time and they have success and they have that one good year someone's going to find them and someone's going to you know invite them or draft them on a, in a NHL or USHL or Western Hockey League or a school's going to you know once you start getting contacted by these schools you know okay I'm doing the right things and it's a, it's a small world the hockey world is you know it's just as much about your character and being a good teammate and, and being a good student and being a good kid and everything else as it is, you know, scoring a goal or getting an assist. So um, it's a it's a it's a long process, but yeah, advisors and that's a long answer for you, Pitt. Sorry, but family advisors it's it's, it's not really a, a really clear situation. Yeah, and I you know there's there's a lot. The landscape has changed. I mean, when you and I were going through that process we didn't have the internet you know you, you didn't have 
the family advisors that you do now and and uh, the services are where people are saying that you know you pay me some money I'm gonna get you in front of people that you wouldn't be able to do that so what I'm hearing is uh, for those services the family advisor when you're a younger player trying to get noticed because you, you, you come from Medina, I mean, even just anywhere in Minnesota, uh, we're, we're heavily scouted, you know, that, that's an area that's heavily scouted, but what happens if you're from a, a small town in Arizona? Uh, do you recommend that they seek out these services to, to help them get in front of people that they otherwise wouldn't be able to do that? Yeah, that's a great question, and it's true, exactly what you said that uh, like the markets we're in are highly visible. Like that's where, you know, you, yes, a family advisor can help probably, you know, a player out of, you know, Sioux City or Florida or Arizona or a pocket where they're not really, you know, in a, in playing in front of, you know, college coaches or in a hotbed as much. They're not in Boston. They're not in Michigan. They're not in Minnesota. Um, for sure. That that's where they can, they can help you a little bit more. Um, it just gets tricky because sometimes, you know, if you are a family advisor and you're calling Wisconsin or Michigan or Minnesota, whoever, one of the a good team or Mankato or, you know, St. Cloud or Duluth. So those coaches get a call from a family advisor and they, they know the family advisor is getting paid two, three, four thousand dollars $4,000 a year to promote that player. You know, the, the, the coach is kind of thinking, okay. You know, um, we usually find our own players, so they know you're getting paid to call me about this kid. You know, sometimes it's maybe maybe this player isn't as good if he, if he has to pay you to get him, you know, an opportunity too. So it's kind of, that's where it gets a little bit tricky because it's kind of like a crazy parent. That's what advisors sometimes could get mixed up as being because if you have a crazy parent calling you and telling you how good their kid is, you know, you, the parent might think they're, they're, they're doing their son a, a favor or their daughter but you're not. You're just putting up red flags as to, okay, you know, your kid might be pretty good, but now that I had this crazy call from you, I, I maybe, you know, it hurts you a little bit too. Because sometimes, you know, the kids that just do it and, and keep doing it and performing and, and just on a consistent basis, you know, then the, the teams find you, you know, it's going to be fair. Whether you start out in the whatever league or it's where you end. And this journey, you know, as long as you keep getting better every year, um, you're going to be just fine. There's enough leagues and teams, like I said, that you're going to get noticed and you're going to get your chance. And that's a good thing about college hockey is you don't, you don't, you know, the clock doesn't burn out like it does in the Canadian junior leagues where you're 20 years old, you know, like in junior hockey too, that's your last year you can play. But in college you can play, you know, until you're 26, 25. So, I mean, there's hockey's fair. If you're good enough and keep getting better, you know, you you like our Dave Allison, one of our greatest coaches, Pitter, um, that you connected me with. Yeah. You know, life isn't always fair, but hockey is. If you're good enough, you'll find your way, just like you did from Hershey to Ottawa to Florida. Yeah. No, it's true. But again, you know that that message that you just <clears throat> clarified was for people that maybe don't know a lot about what's going on and um, being a in the, the field that you're in. And we're going to wrap this up here, Hank. Uh, I appreciate you taking the time. It's been an awesome interview. Um, and all the changes, I mean, we, I, 
you know, you think about when we were training together, what were we doing? We were lifting weights, trying to get stronger, and then we skated on the <clears throat> the acceleration treadmill. <laughs> Remember that year that we just we just totally committed. Uh, we hadn't make it, made it to the NHL, and I think it was a 10-week program. We had Dick Vra, who was just a legend uh, instructor. He was, you know, a coach, but then he got into teaching kids. 10 weeks, we just never got off that treadmill not feeling like we wanted to puke. Uh, we go to camp feeling great. Uh, we have a cup of coffee, and both of us were sent down, like, in two days. <laughs> you remember that? <laughs> Yeah, because we played like right away after we thought we'd see each other in the NHL and we met in the minor. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I remember I remember feeling just unbelievable, like in camp, skating straight ahead. The crossover is not so good, but skating straight ahead on that treadmill, it was it was incredible. Yeah, it uh, it was good. But, you know, I think, Hank, that we we just love the process. You know, we we set out our objective and then we just went to work and put time into trying to get a little closer to it each day and uh, made the most out of our opportunities. So uh, the one last question that I want to ask you is because you, you represent a lot of great, great players. Um, what should players be focusing on right now uh, to try to reach the highest levels? That's a great question, Peter. And... You know, it's it's the funny thing is, is the kids that that uh, are in it for the long haul and, and, and have a passion for it and want to keep getting better, keep working at their game. They don't have to be crazy and 24 seven be, you know, breathing, sleeping, eating hockey and nothing else. It's good to have that balance, obviously, too, and have it taken away from me a little bit. But it's just it's just, you know, buying in. To the, it's not a, you know, you get called up and you guess what? Once you get there, you got to produce to stay. So it's a, it's a marathon. So I think just every day doing something to, to get a little better and feeding that passion that you have. But the kids that have the most success are the kids that have, you know, the best support group too. have the best parents, have the best coaches, have the best, you know, teammates, you know, cause that's how you, you get to the next level. You win, you're part of a group. You, you know, being a, a good teammate and being liked is, is really, really important. So I think, uh, like all of our guys, like I can name, like, you know, the Ryan McDonough's, you know, to the Jake Ottinger's. So that's at both ends, a 23-year-old and the, you know, say 35-year-old. Everywhere in between, those are absolute, the highest character kids. So the better your character is, the better chance you're going to have to have success in hockey and more importantly, you know, life after. So um, it's all about you know, enjoying the moment like we did training, riding the bus and doing all that stuff. Like look at your son, Rem, look at the journey he's taken and fought through the adversity. He's known he can do it all along. And all of a sudden he's a, he's an instant success in Montreal or wherever he last plays. No, it's, it's just, it's finding that right place and just grinding through it. And, and like in life, you, you get kicked off the horse. Guess what? You know, success is getting back on it one more time than you fall off it. And he's going to get kicked off the horse again, and so is everyone else. And it's how you deal with that, because that's what judges, you know, your character and 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 you know your success in in life. So it's enjoying it and just having fun and and trusting it and working your butt off. So the last thing that I'll say is, when I had you retired before I did, 
Um, and then when it came time for me to retire, I called you and told you. And <laughs> in true Ben Hankinson fashion, and I don't even know if you remember this, but what you did is I called you, I said, I'm retired. And you said, really? And yeah. He said, all right, you got to do something for me. I'm like, okay, what? He says, I want you to take all your clothes off. <laughs> Why do I want to do that, Hank? Because uh, I want you to go look at yourself in the mirror because you're never going to see that body again. <laughs> That's, <laughs> That's what you told me, and uh, I guess it, it set me off on the, the path to not being a player. But, Hank, I can't thank you enough for, for taking the time to be on the, on the show. Uh, just awesome messaging. Congratulations on a, an amazing career that wasn't given to you. It was earned, and you took advantage of every opportunity that you had to to parlay that 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 moment in time uh, to be a professional hockey player. Um, and congratulations on a an awesome career as a uh, player agent, because uh, that's not an easy industry to get into. So um, you are the man. Thank you for being here, Hank. I really appreciate it, and congratulations on making uh, the hockey world a little better from your contributions. Well, thank you, Peter, and right back at you. You were the best captain I ever played with and for, and so we were great friends, and you were great. Even though you were, we were on the same team, you were a great role model and, and leader, just the way you've done everything. You've grinded and, and battled, and then watching you, you know, your hands from sweet hands going to the rink, all those hours working on, you know, what you're selling to these kids is so impressive to see. So it's right back at you. I, I couldn't be prouder to call your friend. And lucky enough, we lined up, uh, lined together for so many years and went through the, the battle. Uh, you're, good, you're a great friend. I love you, Pitter. That's awesome. I don't know if I've ever said. Hey, and Pitt, let me let time out. Let me give one more plug because I feel like I wasn't. Um, given the family advisor uh, kind of role as, as much, because I was thinking as I was saying it, I, basically I was just trying to say too, is that you don't, don't go chase a fa always a family advisor or an agent, but I do have a friend, Tony Michael, his name is, and he's with Next Level. And I'm just going to say he is so passionate he doesn't need to do it for the money. But he's a great example of a guy that helps these kids going to play D3 or the NHL or USHL or Division One. And I just wanted to make a plug for Tony Michael because he, he I do see him and we talk a lot about how he can help kids. And, and you know, they, they, all these guys, whatever league they're playing in, even if it's JV hockey, you know, if you want to keep getting there, he can help you or there is a way. So it's not just for the guys that are, you know, scoring all the goals. So sorry for throwing it a little disjointed, but I felt bad about, you know, kind of maybe talking about the family advisor thing. No, not exactly the right that's way. great. Uh Send me the uh, his his uh, information. I'll put it in the uh, the description. So if people are interested to learn more, uh, they can go find Tony. Perfect. All right, Peter. Thanks a million. Great connecting with you again, and uh, congrats on your success with the show. I'd like to congratulate their your your listeners. They're all winners if they listen to you. Oh, <laughs> thank you, Hank. You have a great day, and appreciate you taking the time. Awesome. Talk soon. Bye. Well, that concludes another episode of the Hockey Journey Podcast. I can't thank you enough for stopping by and listening. I hope you got something positive from the interview, 
And if you think there's someone in your circle of family and friends that might like this episode as well, please share with just one person. It will really help me in growing this hockey community. Again, I appreciate you being here. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, or submit a review. I hope to see you back here soon, and do me a favor. Make someone close to you smile today. All the best, my friends.